up everyone, welcome to another episode of Death Station Radio. It's me, your boy Dan Evans. I'm joined as ever by the boy Nathan Cush. Alright, the OG, back again. And I'm joined by the boy Dr. Kieran Smith, or should I say Dr. Dr. Kieran Smith. Welcome Kieran. Gentlemen. How are you doing? Kieran double D like. Very good. Very Kieran, good. do you want us to share your good news? Uh, no. Okay. Um, Alright, fine. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, no, thank, thanks so much for uh, tuning in. Um, apologies for the relatively lengthy hiatus. Um, once again, I will draw your attention to the fact that we are all in very important key workers and we're just very busy. Yeah. Um, I've been working in Timpsons. Nate's working in Timpsons. Kieran's working in A&E. I'm out working with the homeless. We're just, you know, we're just, we're just heroes, aren't we? We're just heroes, good guys. Um, yeah. Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about uh, Marxism. It's going to be Desolation Radio's introduction to Marxism. This is take two. We basically did the first version, what, six months ago, possibly? Um, no, no, uh, no, uh, nine. It was in March, I think. Okay. So uh, <laughs> nine months, yeah, in March. So uh, just like all our theory episodes, um, well, me in particular, I get you know got racked by existential angst about the episode not being... Um, not being good enough or whatever and and i'm sure this episode is going to be probably absolutely identical to the one we recorded in the first place um so this is take yeah this is take two um maybe at some stage we'll release like the recording of the first one um and also maybe if we'd record <laughs> if we'd released the first one in time we would have won um, a grant off an unnamed uh, marxist organization but let's not go there so we're going to go through as much of, about the introduction to marxism as we can today and that's that's pretty much it so yeah. um the, the history and uh, analysis of Karl Marx in, in, in one hour. In an hour. Let's go. All right. So Marxism is primarily a criticism of capitalism, okay, of the status quo. So it doesn't just describe, you know, what is going on in society. It criticizes it. And unlike other, you know, sociological theories, for want of a better word, Marxism offers a way of understanding, you know, almost every aspect of our lives, you know, of society, even so history, politics, economy, you know, class, power, inequality, education, racism, you know, the media, culture, you know, interpersonal relationships, work, gender, you know, international relations. You know, it's an all-encompassing way of thinking and understanding the world. And, you know, I guess this is probably why people, you know, people ask, like, why why are we, you know, angry all the time about absolutely everything? And it's because, you know, once you, I think once you've studied Marxism and read Marxism, it, you know, it is an all-encompassing way of understanding the world that focuses on, class relations in particular and it means that you know that's what that's why you know you can you can just analyze and cri- criticize everything and you're never happy and i think and, and hopefully after listening to this you know no one else will be happy well it's a lot like uh, the film they live as soon as you get the mark some sunglasses on you can just see everything for it yeah is. yeah i mean like um there's that onion article and it was like noam chomsky just tries to have one relaxing day where he doesn't spend every day criticizing <laughs> <laughs> criticizing things so he like wakes up and gets disgusted by absolutely every aspect of daily life and then he tries to have a mcdonald's <laughs> and then he says it was too salty and then he criticizes mcdonald's being like an imperialist global <laughs> um but that's basically what happens i mean and the other thing is like our friend steph uh shuriken tin man on one of our news rounds like i think he did quite a good analysis of, of what it's like to be a marxist today he just said well you know you're just constantly bored because once you understand Marxism, you, you sort of you, you realize that this like cataclysmic crisis is coming. You know, you you can predict that like the Tories are going to obviously win. You can predict that like you know Trump is going to get elected, the Brexit is going to happen, and all this stuff. Um, whereas if you're you know I guess a liberal, then you're just constantly shocked 
and horrified by these things happen like on a day-to-day basis like how could this happen how could this happen and it's like well you know it's obviously going to happen but so marxism is uh on the one hand a blessing and it enables you to understand <laughs> and predict society in um a relative in well in a completely accurate way but it's obviously a curse and then it condemns you to be in um well just really miserable and and I mean, and, you know, if you look at us, I mean, this is why we've aged, probably, I think, so um, so terribly. Yeah, we're only, like, 15. <laughs> you know, I'm only 23 years old. And, um, <laughs> but, um, I mean, we, you know, we're all Marxist, you know, and I guess the original um, premise of the podcast was to promote, you know, Marxist ideas and, and, and to promote Marxism. So here we are four years later trying mm-hmm. to get around to it. So, yeah, so, I mean, Marxism, as I said, is a way of understanding and analysing society, but, but unlike any other sort of theories, of society it became the core of you know a new ideology which is obviously called communism which also recommends you know a different way of ordering society so as marx famously puts it you know philosophers have only interpreted the world you know the point was for him to change it and as we'll see he was a committed revolutionary himself who had an incredibly interesting life he was a full-time activist although i will say is that you know this specific episode is not going to talk about communism you know as a practice that happened you know later in sort of like russia cuba the soviet union um because you know we'll get bombarded by people oh the road to hell is paved with good intentions and like what about cuba or what about venezuela um and you know i mean these are you know if you want to have a discussion about you know a serious discussion about um these societies and you know their achievements and, and you know and their failures that's that's fine but as we know is that you know most people will just point to those societies and use them as ways of having to avoid uncomfortable discussions about inequality and you know an, an oppression in our society today so it's just a you know a convenient tool people will use um yeah, i think that is an important though that marxism isn't just the kind of ideology of communism the yeah, purpose exactly. of marxism it's it's an analytical tool yeah. that enables you to understand capitalism and obviously the end point of that is to try to dismantle capitalism, but the point being that you know to show capitalism's um, you know the inequalities and the contradictions of it. It's not just um, and, a, and that and that is uh, the stick that's always used to beat people. But like I said, you don't necessarily. I mean, I mean, obviously, I personally am a fan of the Soviet Union and Cuba um, and all these other uh, countries because of their achievements for the working class. But you don't necessarily have to agree with those societies or how they're being ordered to use Marxism as a, a framework for understanding. There's like a, a is it a nice like graphic by Eric Olin Wright, you know, dearly departed Eric Olin Wright, and he says, you know, Marxism's like got sort of three nodes. And you know, the first is Marxism as a class analysis, as a way of understanding our society. The second is Marxism as a theory of history, so understanding how we've got here and as how and how society changes and, and evolves. And then the final one is, you know, Marxism as, as class emancipation, as a, as a theory of like how to order society and change. Um, so I guess now it would be good if, Nath, if you said something like, but why is Marxism relevant today? Didn't he die in like the 18th, 19th century or something? All right, I'll, I'll do it in like a really convincing way, but I'll leave what you've just said in. So it just makes it really inauthentic. But Dan... How is Marxism relevant today? I mean, didn't he die like in the 18th century or something? I don't know. I'm thick. Well, Nath, that's a great question. Thank you so much for asking it. Yes, well, this is a question that is commonly asked. You know, why is Marxism relevant today? And there, are, well, there are numerous reasons why Marxism is relevant today. So, and, it, and it's not just it's not just cranks like us who say that Marxism is relevant today. You know, I've got a whole slide of like the New York Times, the Guardian, all these top economists, capitalist economists, who say you know, following the economic recession in 2008. 
Karl Marx, you were right. You know, Karl Marx, all is forgiven. Karl Marx, you know, basically was right about everything. So all these people, you know, following the, the, the you know, the capitalist collapse in 2008 and our ongoing, you know, worldwide economic and ecological crises, you know, a bunch of, you know, more mainstream economists and thinkers, even if they like, you know, they basically would say, well, we don't agree with communism, but Marxism's analysis of capitalism and its inbuilt tendencies to sort of uh, destroy itself, the rate tendency of the rate of profit to fall and so on, are obviously correct because capitalism, as Marx predicted, continually undergoes uh, periodic crises. I mean, I, I'm saying that, and I'm not, but then you know, I'm not going to talk about like Marx's economic stuff really in, in in this podcast. But that is one of the first reasons why you know he's you know Marxism is relevant today because if we want to understand why you know our wages. <laughs> never increasing um (laughs) and why you know and why we're sort of tending towards uh global uh imperialist warfare again and the struggle over scarce resources is kind of important (laughs) to read marxism and i guess yeah and, and and the other one is is the fact that society is is essentially returned to the feudal age you know, like um, if you look at the, the global inequality now, there's that one stat, wasn't it? It was like wealth inequality is at the same stage as it was during the French Revolution. You know, when, uh, you know, some of the stats are, you know, like the richest 1% owns, you know, 44% of the world's wealth. Top 10 billionaires own more wealth than, you know, most world's most of the world's countries. You know, almost half of humanity is living on less than $5 a day. You know, only four cents in every dollar of tax revenue comes from taxes on wealth. You know, the super rich avoid as much as 30 percent of their tax liability, you know, 258 million children, you know, one in five aren't allowed to go to school because because they, they've got to work down some, you know, like in the lithium mine to provide us with iPhone batteries and so on. So, basically, and it's, 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 you know, it's at our doorstep as well. UNICEF uh, for the first time ever have had to feed kids this Christmas. Yeah, and like Oxfam have set up, you know, have, 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 for the last few years, have had a field office in Wales. You know, homelessness is is at the highest rate in Wales that, that it's been since records were sort of recorded. There was over 12,000 homeless households last year. You know, like the, the staggering wealth inequality is like is staring us in the face. And, and of course, the other, well, I've got on here a stretch and challenge. You know, can you think of another example where class inequality has been in the news? Um, and the obvious answer is the you know the COVID crisis. You know, I mean, maybe in the in the post-war period, you know, post World War Two, that is, because um, obviously we're constantly at war. But you know, in the, in, in the, you know, in the, in the post-war, post, yeah, in the in the post-war period, you know, you had a, a period of you know a capitalist boom where, albeit which was you know built on the back of of empire, but you know you had you know rising living standards across the capitalist world, and also like to an extent you've got like a lot of people who've grown up during, especially our the liberal commentator class in the UK have grown up under Blairism, which is kind of like a mini version of the baby boomers. They were born into a um, you know, relatively stable economy with a sort of a, an insipid social democratic uh, party in charge. But, you know, for I think for a period, people could probably have convinced themselves that they were living in a, a classless society because people used to say like class doesn't matter or we're all middle class now. But, you know, since 2008 and you know the covid crisis has proven you know how ridiculously unequal society is i mean you i mean surely now even the most ardent like blairites and liberal people can look at the covid crisis and look what's going on look at the different areas in the uk which are terribly hit by covid you know it's all the working class areas where people are crammed into houses you know because these are the places where people can't self-isolate they can't go and work from home they're not on furlough they've had to work in supermarkets and care homes you know and working class people have just gone they've just gone out and got on with it and they kept society going you'd you'd have to be the most 
com- committedly like blinkered person to to think that you know there there is no class inequality now as the Tories have sort of handed contracts <laughs> to like their mates openly and like you know denied given loans to to landlords refused loan, loans for tenants so I so I guess the fundamental point is you know the, the reason Marx is 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 so important is because you know we've we've essentially returned to the period where Marx the Marx was describing and analysing and talk and talking about and as I said if you know ask any mainstream economist you know is Marxism you know relevant and they will say yes so I guess the point is it's not just you can rely on people who are probably more respectable and mainstream than us to tell you and if you're struggling you know if people are saying to you over Christmas after you listen to this Marxism is rubbish you will just say well you know, just hit them with wealth inequality slides and just say do you think that's fair do you think the class you know do you think the class matters do you think do you think class matters Anyway, you know, before we go on, it's important briefly to understand capitalism, which was, you know, this the the, the very thing that Marx spent his spends his life. Do you want me to prompt it again? <laughs> yeah, go on then. But Dan, you mentioned capitalism earlier, and because um, I'm really thick and don't take any you don't notice, throw, of, you don't have to throw those theatrical flourishes in. I um, just really want to sell it. <laughs> <laughs> but what is capitalism, Dan? I just I haven't come across it in my day-to-day life. Well, then, <laughs> we, do, we do have people, though, don't we, like who responded to us on Twitter and who basically just say, you know, this sort of the all the solipsism of of the Blairite will just say, well, you know, actually, I've I've done pretty well. So I, I own three houses around. I so rent them all out. Capitalism is fine; it works for me. And yeah, capitalism is is widely understood by people, you know, particularly if you're doing well. You know, a free system of goods and exchange. You know, free enterprise, free trade. Everyone gets rich, everyone wins, um, and I guess if you don't make it, that's because you aren't working hard enough or, you know, not talented enough. And, like, you know, the other thing is that the economy is also sort of spoken about as something which, like, floats above us, like the weather. You know, it's even discussed at the end of the news with the weather. You know, oh, the stock the stock market's gone up as well. Like, no one, no one the knows. the trade winds will be blowing yeah, it. No, no one knows how this has happened. You know, it's like the weather and then the stock market because they're both spoken about as if they're, you know, uh, facilitated or by god or some like spirit. black clouds indicates trickle-down economics <laughs> and, and you know marx this is what marx spent his life trying to say basically that the you know this system of free exchange and free enterprise and you know it is wrong you know basically that it's rigged and that it's deeply immoral and unfair and that you know and, and if you take nothing away from this episode i mean that you know that is i think one of the you know the key the key tenets of marxism you know it is a moral it is a moral critique. You know, Marx was, um, you know, uh, you know, someone who Marx and Engels were both born into wealthy, you know, wealthy families and they had no right to be sort of um, involved, really, in the things that they were involved in. But, you know, they, they, they saw poverty and suffering all around them and they were horrified by it. And, you know, and I would argue that if you know anyone with with any normal human empathy or with eyes should walk around like for example Cardiff City Centre and you should be hor- you should be horrified by the human misery and suffering you see and you know so and so you know Marx said, and and, Mark, and the other thing is that Marx says that capitalism isn't just an economic system you know but it's also a type of of society so you know capitalism is an economic system necessarily creates a society that is strictly divided into hierarchy and social classes and we'll talk about that later but what he's saying is you can't have as some people claim on the one hand a functioning capitalist society and on the other a nice healthy democratic and a fair society of equality because by nature the capitalist system doesn't allow this in fact you know for capitalism to thrive for profits to thrive it depends 
on a class divided and oppressive society. You know, the two go two go hand in hand. You know, you can't have you literally can't have one without the other. So and that's and that's the core of his his critique of capitalism, I guess. Um, so I'll just briefly talk about the you know the history and the context of Marxism because you can't understand Marx and, and where he comes from or or Marxism without understanding the historical context and the period in which he grew up. And in the last episode, I had a meltdown because um, it's very difficult to find a concise timeline of Marx's life. Um, it's either really brief or just <laughs> so specific. Yeah, just... so um, I'm just going to go through Marx's life because I think um, it's also worth plugging as well, a film called The Young Marx. It's a German film, but it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting overview of Marx and Engels' life. And once you understand the society that they grew up in, you can understand, I guess, where it all comes from, you know? Okay, so here we go, children. 1818, Marx is born in Trier in Germany to a middle-class Jewish family. 1830, you've got the French Revolution, also in Belgium and Poland. Marx goes to school uh, or the gymnasium. You've got 1832, protests demanding the reunification of Germany. 1835, Marx goes to Bonn University to study law. 1836, he gets engaged. That's not really relevant, but, you know... um, he was uh, a family man who had a lot of kids. 1886, um, he gets laid, son. Yeah, Marx gets laid for the first time. Um, and, and only. Uh, and doesn't write anything then for like a good few months because he's just having a good time. Um, he, um, yeah, 1836 then, he he, um, he moved to Berlin and starts uh, studying and basically gets obsessed with a German philosopher called Hegel. Uh, 1841, writes a doctorate on the history of philosophy. Uh, wouldn't recommend reading that because it's pretty dense. I mean, already you can see that I mean, Bloke is an actual an actual genius. 1842, writes his first piece of journalism, which is a critique of Prussian absolutism. Uh, 1842, still, he begins to write for the Rheinische Zeitung in Cologne, which is a radical sort of liberal publication, liberal dem- democratic publication. And he begins to sort of write about the rights of protecting protecting sort of the workers. At this stage, Marx is more of a radical democrat. You know, he's like saying we should we should extend suffrage to like the peasants. Um it's like a Bernie Sanders, is he? <laughs> yeah, because basically at this time, obviously, people, you know, people aren't allowed the right to vote. You know, democracy is in its infancy. So, so he's he's criticising what he's seeing around him uh, and, and advocating for, you know, the poor, the serfs, you know, like the the um, the people in the, that, that like those old historical things who are just being like whipped um, <laughs> by farmers. You know, he's advocating for he's advocating for these people. Yeah. 1842. He meets Engels for the first time, which is the start of a beautiful friendship, which will last a lifetime. 1843, he becomes the editor of the Rheinische Zeitung. And under his leadership then, the paper becomes more revolutionary. There's a shift from this like revolutionary democracy. It's like actual communist ideas to start thinking about the economy um, and politics. After which, the Prussian state bans the paper. He then moves to France with his new wife, Jenny. And in Paris, he begins to get involved in clandestine worker societies. 1844, you've got the Silesian Weaver Uprising, which Marx praises. He then meets Engels again in 1844. And this is kind of like their more substantive meeting. It was like before it was like, oh, hey, man. And now it's like, I love Boy, hey. Here he is. Yeah. Yeah. And they become, they start, this is when they really start their bromance. 1845, Marx is forced to leave France. He starts then to develop like the materialist theory of history. And basically, I think it's important to emphasize a lot of the time they're just looking and analyzing, you know, what's going on around them. You know, they're a revolution. They can't not 
sort of start to write and think like this because there's just constant uprisings and revolutions during this period which are being like brutally suppressed um, and they're obviously encouraging it um marx then moves to brussels in 1845 engels then joins him in 1845 engels publishes a condition of the working class in england i think he was like 24 when he wrote this and i mean the condition of the working class in england is like an incredible analysis of the, the sort of the horrific conditions in England that Engels experienced when he was there working for his parents in their sort of big factory in Manchester. Uh, also contains an interesting anti-Irish diatribe, which is uh, certainly problematic, but very interesting. Uh, Engels basically says that, you know, all the workers do is like fight and have sex and that because their lives are so miserable, um, which I'm sure... <laughs> Something uh, we can relate to, yeah. Certainly, well, maybe the fighting bit. Um <laughs> But the other stuff is alien to all of us. Um, makes makes you sick that he wrote that when he was 24, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. I found out Paul Thomas Anderson directed Boogie Nights at the same age. You're just like, yeah, oh, absolutely God. Absolutely depressing. 1845, Marx and Engels visit England. Uh, and they, this is interesting because, you know, you, you, you realise how relevant they are. You know, they meet the Chartists. They start to study what's going on in England. Or, or actually, you know, if you read The Condition of the Working Class in England, you know, Engels talks about Wales. You know, and obviously Chartism, not that we get taught this in school, but, you know, Chartism plays a played a massive role, you know, the last armed uprising in the UK happened in Newport, and then obviously, you know, the Labour Council pulled that, uh, the nice mural, mural down. thereby completely erasing its uh, sort of, its significance in the popular conscience in Newport, uh, and Marx and Engels were involved with the Chartists, you know, they were involved, you know, they were involved with these people, I mean, that it just blows my mind that's not talked about, you know, and what, you know, in 1845, then they start to work on this text called the German Ideology, which contains sort of this idea of historical and dialectical materialism, which we'll talk about in a sec, um, because they're starting to think, they're looking at these revolutions that are happening around them, and they're starting to think how society is changing. Then in 1845, Marx renounces his Prussian citizenship. 1846, he sets up the Communist Correspondence Committee in Brussels. 1847, in London, the Committee of the League of the Just, which is something that you'd think, it sounds like an Indiana Jones uh, sort of society. It's part of the uh, MCU, isn't it? <laughs> they send a guy called Joseph Moll to Marx and Engels, and they propose that Marx and Engels join the League of the Just, and they draw up a program for it, or a manifesto, if you will. Um, <laughs> That's how the movie ends. Yeah. Um, June 1847, you got the Congress. The League of the Just takes place in London, and it's renamed the Communist League. They adopt the motto proposed by Marx and Engels: "Working men of all countries." unite 1847 to 1848 marx and engels set branches of the communist league in brussels 1848 there's revolutions in france and italy 1848 the communist manifesto is published in london so this is the first coherent document of communism and like there are a load of texts that are relevant for marx and engels but i really recommend like the communist manifesto for me is it still contains basically everything you need to know it, like it, it i still every time i read it i still come away like incredibly excited and energized um but this is like the first coherent program and document of the communist movement and they published that then march 1848 marx is arrested in brussels expelled to france by the king he arrives in paris establishes another branch of the communist league engels then joins him and then there's a revolution in germany and they immediately travel back to germany to participate in this revolution that's going on they re-establish that paper, the Rhineish Zeitung in Cologne, and they start to like, you know, ferment revolution, analyze it, and praise praise the working class revolutions that are happening. 1848 and 49. There's basically, you know, this is a period of constant 
revolutionary activity. So, you know, bear in mind in Wales at the time, you know, we, we've already had the Mirth Horizon. This is this is a period across the world, across Europe in particular, of it's just incredibly intense and constantly ongoing revolutionary activity. Marx goes to Vienna to wind people up and get them to start getting involved in revolutions. He goes to Paris, immediately gets expelled from Paris and gets deported to London in 1848. He starts helping out with the Communist League sort of central authority. They hang out with German expats because there's a lot of German people sort of being expelled from Germany at the time. 1850, Engels moves to Manchester. 1851-82, Marx and Engels assist and advise the Chartist movement in England and Wales. 1852, Marx writes the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, where he develops a theory of revolution and a theory of the state and the state's autonomy. During this period, Marx continues to write as a journalist. He starts for the New York Daily Tribune. 1857, we've got the world economic crisis. Marx increasingly focuses on economic writings and understanding you know, why does you know, uh, the economy keeps keep collapsing. 1859, he writes a contribution to a critique of political economy, uh, which he published in Berlin. So 1861 to 65, you've got the US Civil War, which Marx analyzes. He talks about the role of slavery in building up the US economy. 1866, um, this is an important one. Marx has a holiday in Margate. <laughs> I think he's due, he's, he was definitely due one. Like. The arcades. Yeah, he's definitely doing. Yeah, Marx plays on the. He's playing the penny slots. Yeah, Marx goes on the waltzes and he's just sat there sulking, like, because um, he wants to be involved in like revolutions. But um, Marx <laughs> bingo. Yeah, and his missus is there, like, making him use the big giant claw <laughs> to, to, to win a Sonic the Hedgehog's life for this. Son. Yeah, basically. So he has a little hiatus when he goes to Margate, and bam, straight back into. Uh, Revolutionary activity. In September 1866, he publishes Capital Volume 1. November 1969, he starts working on Volume 2 of Capital, which is focused on land ownership. Um, he starts learning Russian, gets obsessed with like what's going on in Russia, as you do. 1870, France and Germany go to war, you know, the Franco-German War. Marx obviously campaigns against this. I mean, you can, you can imagine how much of a tragic a tragic uh, sort of experience this is for Marx, you know, to spend so much time in, you know, he's, he's from Germany, you know, uh, he spends all his time in Paris. And then these two imperial countries go to war, you know, a really deadly war. Um, and he's sort of urging the work, you know, in, in a way which foreshadows like World War One. He's urging it, you know, don't make this a war between workers. You know, it's, you know, don't turn on each other. This is an imperial war. Then in 1870, you've got another revolution in Paris and the start of the French Re- Second French Republic. In 1871, you've got the proletarian revolution in Paris and, and the establishment of the Paris Commune. So that's a really obviously probably the first example of you know communist ideas or you know working class ideas sort of put into practice at the time. Marx and Engels advise you know the Paris Commune and sort of like defend it. 1871, Marx then publishes the Civil War in France. What's great about like the Communist International and stuff like that, whenever Marx would write something, they'd all pass a motion that everyone has to read it. So it's like Carl's written something is amazing, like make sure you go and read it. It was awesome. And Engels always like published reviews of it, which is like He's done it again. It's phenomenal. Get out, <laughs> get out and read it. And it would like, you know, sort of uh, five stars, five stars. Yeah, be promoted. Yeah, <laughs> Engels would write the blurb all the time. Like, it's like, okay, um, yeah, this is amazing. He's done it again. Like, um, eighteen seventy-two, you've got the first international. And um, if you remember, if you're a diehard Desolation fan, um, you'll remember our our episode that we did with Ivan um, on Nesta Macno and. This is 1872, the first international. This is a split between. So the first international is basically an international congregation of working men's organisations. But 1872, this is sort of a the split between the anarchist 
faction and the Marxist faction. Bakunin and Marx have a massive beef. It's a lot like Twitter uh, back in the day, isn't it? Yeah, Twitter back in the day. Yeah, so like I said, one of the good things about Marx is that he beefed with everyone. Yeah, just basically beef with Bakunin. His health starts to deteriorate, you know, sort of an overlooked part of his life. I mean, because, I mean, he was like a polymath. You know, he started to study maths, agrochemistry. Um, and we will at some stage do, uh, you know, talk about the relationship between Marx and Engels and communism in the natural world. Because he talks about um, the, the role of sort of the natural world in our society. And he talks about alienation from the earth and stuff like that. He writes a critique of the Gotha programme. He helps Engels with anti Durung, starts working on volumes two and three of Capital, which unfortunately aren't published after, he, after he's, uh, he's dead. 1882, his wife dies. Uh, 1882, um, Marx Engels. Goes Engel- back to Margam. <laughs> he goes Margate. back to Margate. Um, 1882, um, Marx Engels write the preface to the Russian edition of the Manifesto. It's always worth reading, I think, the the, the introductions to, like, and the prefaces to the various versions of the Communist Manifesto because they're not like these generic. They're not generic introductions where they just write the same thing. You know, they dedicate huge amounts of time to understanding, for example, the conditions of working class people or the society in like Italy and Russia. Uh, and they correctly foreshadow and they predict that Russia is at the vanguard of, you know, is going to be at the vanguard of the international sort of working people's revolution. 1883, unfortunately, his daughter dies. And shortly after, Marx dies <laughs> and is buried in Highgate Cemetery. So as you can see, you know, like, an incredibly revolutionary life of just basically going around the continent, being arrested, deported, um, stirring people up, you know, talking about what he's seeing. And obviously, you know, both of them, well, for me, like, you know, they're just incredibly, but, you know, they're just, these are people with incredible, like, moral consciousness and, and, and conscience, because at the time, you know, like, if you, as I said, this is, their, their contemporaries and their peers, people born into those cl- the class that they were born into, you know, would have no right to to moan or or, or, or to to criticise the system because they were basically doing well out of it. Um, but you know, they dedicated their life to sort of criticising it. But you know, it, and, and we've talked about this a lot on the podcast is that people always there's a tendency, particularly in the like the British left, to sort of denigrate theory or you don't need to read this because you know blah blah because you know it's more important to do stuff but it was like well obviously like Marx and Engels in particular like just like Gramsci and, and Lenin aren't people who just like sat in an ivory tower just like pontificate and these are people who just spend their life throwing themselves into revolutionary activity um, and it also shows how important it is to analyze what's going on around you you know like you can't have like revolutions and like a revolutionary sort of movements without people who are sort of propagandizing and, and studying it and studying what's going on um, yeah i think that was you know one of the great achievements and one of the most important things that he understood was the power of ideas yeah and, and the importance of communicating revolutionary ideas um because you can't change society without analyzing it <laughs> and without <laughs> having different ideas about what it might look like yeah and 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 like the, the historical context is fascinating because i think you, we need to understand, like, you know, how society changes, you know, how we've got to where we are, you know, like how the fact that, you know, we've grown up with all this technology and like we don't have to work down the pit like our grandparents um, and all this stuff. And, and 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 during this period, obviously, there's, you know, you've got, you know, re- in- incredible revolutionary upheaval that's happening. And, you know, so so the Mark, you know, Marx and Engels ideas come from just they're inseparable from growing up in this incredibly sort of unstable period and I think like so it's probably like a good time now to just briefly try to introduce 
some of these ideas. So just briefly talk you know, about the concept of dialectics, because I think um, talking about revolutionary revolution and upheaval is probably a good way of thinking about this. So Marx spent most of his life sort of, or the early part of his life, certainly as a, as a, uh, philosoph- as a philosopher. Dianetics or dialectics? Dialectics, mate, yeah. <laughs> what, the Scientology <laughs> thing? Dietetics. I always mix up yeah. dialectics with dialectics. Yeah, so, so Mark, Mark spent like, you know... I paid four grand to learn about dialectics. <laughs> he writes his PhD on, um, you know, philosophy, and he, he sort of engages a lot with Engels, just in the same way, uh, with uh, Hegel, sorry, just in the same way that, like, Gramsci was obsessed with, like, Croce, sort of, who's an Italian philosopher, like, Marx was sort of obsessed with Hegel. So just very briefly, because, you know, I think it's important to break this stuff down because you hear people talk about this is a dialectical approach or this is dialectical materialism and stuff. And like all this stuff really isn't like as intimidating as it sounds. You don't really need, I think, to like be intimidated by it or or turned off by it. Basically, dialectics is a philosophical approach. The way I see it is essentially as a as a way in which society uh, essentially progresses. And so it, it it was basically about about motion and disruption and change. So traditionally, if you think like Hegel and these other philosophers used to say that, like, you know, let's say you're having an argument or a debate, which is obviously what we do a lot and what people on the left do all the time. You could traditionally say that you've got logic, which would trump one side, for example. You know, so you've got one person saying something and, ah, aha, this this trumps it. So As in, what, there's always, like in any argument, there's always one absolute right position. Yeah, exactly. And that you're speaking towards trying to find that. Yeah, exactly. I think you'll find that if you read uh, Matthew Godwin's work on the uh, rise of UK, um, yeah, sort of stuff like that. But obviously, you know, the, the, con- the concept of, you know, like Hegelian, I think, dialectics or like traditional dialectics is the idea that you've got two competing um, perspectives, you know. So one, you would say it's the thesis. Two, you've got the antithesis or like a, a competing version of, of an argument. And then from those two uh, approaches engaging and sort of uh, you, you, you create a solution. Um, and so that and that is like how you almost like arguments or logic, not logic, but how, how, how sort of discourse progresses. Yeah. So historical materialism is uh, or dialectical materialism or, or Marxist dialectics basically sort of view society as essentially being in constant flux and constant transformation. Um, and that's, I think, is the main way of understanding what Marx... And if you think about the the historical period that was happening that Marx and Engels were growing up in, you can see why they would, would, would be obsessed with this idea of constant historical change and the idea of, like, ruptures. So society is progressing through these periods of, like, you know, bursts of revolutionary activity, which then produces sort of new society. There's like there's a couple of good metaphors. You know, there's one which is on Wikipedia actually, which is basically about if you look at a river sort of flowing, you know, under the surface of the river, you've got like extreme sort of tension that is happening. You know, like you know the, the water is putting pressure on the riverbanks and, and and things are eroding even if you can't see it. And then after a while, that pressure and these contradictions sort of become inevitable and the river will sort of burst through its banks and like change course and that's kind of how Marx and Engels saw like I think you know dialectics and society changing so but it is interesting to think about this concept of society being in constant motion and changing you know everything is is constantly changing and there are periods of like eruption and contradiction which force societal change essentially I mean actually Lenin is really good on um 
on sort of interpreting Marx and Engels' idea of dialectics, I think, because it's about this idea that um, there's going to be, there's, there's just constant moving. Your history doesn't move in a straight line. It moves in sort of spirals. And, and what Lenin says, he says, there's a development. I am the walrus. <laughs> yeah, Lenin, yeah. Lenin says, you know, history develops by leaps, catastrophes and revolutions, i.e. breaks in continuity. So it's, you know, this constant period of transformation and, and, and disruption, to use a sort of term that's been popularised by like Steve Jobs and things like that. It is important right now, I think, that to mm. emphasise the idea of dialectics, because, I mean, over the last 30 years, really, you've had the sort of liberal, democratic, centrist sort of um, consensus that has assumed that Fukuyama... Yeah, well, the end of, end of, hist- the end of history, isn't it? All we need to do, we, we've reached the ideal form of economic sort of ordinance and formation. And all we need to do is tinker at the edges and, and use scientific, absolute scientific reason to tinker at the edges of capitalism in order to fine tune it so that it functions in the right way. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, dialectics, you know, Marxist dialectics, you know, tries to emphasize the fact that, well, there, there are always inequalities in, in any society. There is no such thing as an ideal society because societies are always changing. Economies are always changing. Ideas are always changing. And that, yeah, that's 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 exactly right. And um, if you think like, you know, Francis Fukuyama, the end of history, there is, there was, you know, as you said, Kieran, there's literally an assumption that like, we have reached the end of history now. Like nothing is going to happen. This is the ideal type. And obviously that is like, and the, the fact is it clearly hasn't happened. You know, we, we, you know the economic sort of crisis has, has blown out of the water and, you know, we are continuing, society is continually changing. And so I think we'll move now from, you know, dialectics, but um, because again, it's, it's a word like when I was in uni, I used to just drop it in, like everything's dialectic, you know, everything's dialectical. Um, but you don't really, as I said, you don't really need to get too hung up on it. It's just a way of thinking about how society changes. What I think is more important is like this idea of historical materialism, because again, I've been guilty of this. You talk about understanding society in a material, materialist way. What is a materialist understanding of history? This is what Mar- I think Marx and Engels' main contribution, um, which was rooted in their analysis of the societal changes that they were seeing around them because if you think about what was happening you know they were growing up in the industrial revolution so society is changing rapidly from essentially a feudal agricultural society into a society dominated by heavy industry and manufacturing and this is obviously particularly relevant if you know from somewhere like south wales which is like if you ever read gwyneth williams you've got society basically dragged from this like like a backwards rural religious society into an incredibly chaotic mad new world based on you know you've got iron found in south wales you've got the you know the uh, coal mines you've got like mills and producing cotton and stuff um in the north of England and so on, you've got society, the, the economy of society is massively changing. And, and what I think is interesting is that you don't have to worry about the German ideology, but all all historical or you know, materialist understanding of society means is that as, you know, the economic base or the economy, basically as the economy of society changes, as new technologies are created, these literally completely reorder our society. They reorder the way in which we live and this in turn basically completely changes the way we talk to one another, our relationships to one another, the way we understand the world. But when they talk about ideas and, and when they talk about materialism, they basically are, are saying that you know, every period will produce new ways of thinking about the world, which are produced by the different ways in which we live and socialize. So, for example, you know, if you, um, you know, if you're living in a 
like a feudal society where people live on a farm or, you know, you're working for a, a lord or whatever, your relationship, this like paternal possibly relationship with this, and, you, and you're working in an isolated environment, there's not going to be much chance of like a revolu- revolutionary uprising. But then obviously what happens then is with the, you know, with the creation of modern industry, people move into these into towns and they, and they work in in unsafe factories and men for the first time are crammed together in big factories and they're talking to one another they've got you know this new boss um you know because so it sees the creation of the, the bourgeoisie this the, the new boss class for the first time and and gradually what they say is that these new conditions of life produce new forms of consciousness and that is that is really all i think the materialist uh, conception of history is and that's, that's all you really need to, to need to know because it changes how we live fundamentally and then because it changes how we live it changes how we think about the world and how we relate to one another and um it's, it's important isn't it because it's not that's not a difficult concept to understand and, and often the way that marxism and, uh, and marxist theories are dismissed they're on the basis that oh they're really these complex highfalutin ideas that are you know, words like dialectics and words like materialism, which, well, with the, you know, they're too confusing and complicated to understand. But but actually, it's very basic. And, and I, I would argue that most of the, the Marxist theorists of the 20th century were trying to emphasize was there is a material basis of, of all social and cultural. Phenomena. Exactly. Yeah. And all you have to do is look at, well, look at the institutions, look at where in how industry is organized Look at how the environment is um, is used and how natural resources are used and who owns and controls those major facets of of society. Now, that's not a particularly like um, mystical or, 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 you know, religious kind of way of looking at the world. That That's actually quite a simplistic way of understanding the world. Well, no, that's where the power lies. We don't need to worry about wider you know the, the bigger kind of social orders that that complicate things if you look at who controls and who owns those 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 important sort of pillars of society then you can begin to understand how we can how we can change it for the better when we're talking about the industrial revolution what, what was basically happening in terms of society changing was you know you've got huge technological development you know the creation of the steam engine of railways canals all this completely transforms British society and it also transforms, it creates new classes. So, for example, you know, the landed gentry, although Tom Nairn would dispute this, but, you know, the landed gentry and aristocracy in the UK is basically replaced by a new class, which is called the bourgeoisie. So people who own, who own these factories, who own the mines, co-owners, like a new class of entrepreneurs, what we call them today. And it also creates the proletariat, the industrial working class. So this is a new class that emerges during the 19th century, the, the end of the 19th century, because previously you've just got essentially farm labourers um, and people working in agriculture. But as society changes, you know, people move into the these new cities and towns around these like heavy industries, and they create this new class called the proletariat, and which we'll see later is the most revolutionary class. So thinking about just what you know, what is an example of a materialist understanding of society and societal change? And the thing that I keep coming back to, well, you've, one, you've got Brexit, yeah. You've got the rise of Trump in, in America. You've got the decline of laborism in the UK, I think is probably one of the most obvious ones. And and like, let's say, obviously, we're going to bash liberals. But let if we if we think about so, so the, well, you know, the, the materialist understanding of history, which as we just talked about, is, is how the, these deep structural changes caused by the, the changes to the world of work, which are caused by developments in technology and the economy, create new modes of 
modes of living or you know social relations which is basically social relations is ways of interacting with one another and so on yeah the liberal understanding is basically what that people vote for brexit because of like russian interference cambridge analytica um people you know people voted for the tories uh, you know, there's a permanent Tory majority in the UK because people are racist and thick and stupid. And um, that's the that's the uh, that's the subtext of it all, isn't it? Yeah. And and, and like, you know, the, obviously, you know, you know, the UK is an imperialist country and there is a grain of truth in the fact that, you know, obviously structural racism is a massive problem. But like, you know, what like think first, you know, I would appeal to liberal people think first, you know, what was working class culture and working class politics in the UK and across the world based on, yeah? As Marx and Engels talk about in the Communist Manifesto, there are particular forms and modes of work which create these revolutionary forms of consciousness. So in the Communist Manifesto, they say, you know, men come together and work in the factories, and, you know, and, and they gradually start to feel their power and they, they develop solidarity and militancy in one another with one another because of the conditions that they have to work in. So if you think of South Wales, you know, people cramped underground in mines or in the steelworks or things like that. People living in next door to one another in streets in cramped conditions. People socialising with one another all day. These, it for you know necessarily this created these these material conditions created a very distinct culture and you know and political culture and way of thinking about the world. Um, and it's that life which basically sustained you know the, the left-wing politics in the uk that's the core of it you know the, 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 that was the working class movement people lived in certain ways they worked in certain um they worked in certain industries and they had it they, you know they built their own institutions and so on the labor or liberal left in this country hasn't necessarily grasped that these things that way of living which birthed this way of thinking about the world and forms of solidarity has completely been decimated so you know you walk around Agenda. You work on any. Uh, if you look at South Wales or Wales in general, you know where do people work now? They don't work in the mines. They don't work in the steelworks. People work in Amazon warehouses where you're not allowed to talk to one another. People work as delivery drivers, couriers. You know, um, they live in isolated red row estates. They they live completely isolated, atomized lives because of the way the economy has changed. And necessarily, you know, the these changes in the economy are, are, are not conducive to. <laughs> producing you know a politics of solidarity it's just not it's just not conducive to it uh, and the, and there are these fundamental structural changes which like the trade union movement hasn't grasped you know the labor party hasn't grasped and that you know and that is an example i think of, of if you're looking at like the materialist understanding a, a materialist way of understanding you know societal change well you can look at well that that is that is i would say one one way of of doing it and, and if you think about modern society or the way this in, that people talk about this in everyday life you know we've all heard older people say you know society isn't what it was you know back in my day we could leave the door open the back door unlocked or people were friendlier and like and the thing is that is almost that's basically it and it is true because people people worked everyone worked in the same place and like and like lived in terraced houses next door to one another and communities were decimated by industrialization so obviously the way people have interacted with people have and, and thought about one another as sort of change, you know. And that's what's scary about the current trend towards working from home, isn't it? Of course. Because in, in one sense, you know, oh, great, I can wake up slightly later. I don't have to drive to work. Um, and I can literally get up and work in my pyjamas all day. But, like... You find I'm yourself not, working on the weekend and then late into the evening. <laughs> you know. Yeah, exactly. 
people will say people are going to become and 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 the implications for for unions and workers movements when everyone the only way that anyone sort of communicates with one another is through whatsapp or email yeah, you know, the, the, the modes yeah the ways in which we communicate with each other have changed you know there aren't like for example uh, public forums you know where you know angles and marks you know didn't just have whatsapp groups obviously they, you know they would get together and like meet in person and, and as you said yeah basically everything the, the technological changes although they could have potentially you know they, they could obviously produce you know they have an incredible liberatory potential but the way they're used I, I guess a materialist understanding just forces us to think about you know how does how do new technologies conditions condition the way in which we live, the way in which we interact, the way we work, and how do these things produce new ways of understanding the world? And that's basically what they argue in the German ideology: is that ideas are born from concrete material circumstances. So you know, the ideas don't just you know, like like previously it was thought you know, ideas come out of nowhere and change society, yeah. But they basically well, flip that on its head. Uh, yeah, where yeah they, they, they've completely flipped that on its head and said well actually no the way society is ordered produces new new ideas and new ways of thinking about the world and that's what the materialist understanding of history and society basically is we touched uh, on it on the neoliberalism episode as well didn't we where we're saying yeah. about like tinder and how that's like you know you, it's a different yeah, way of like absolutely um, and like if, in, if engaging we, with people yeah actually that's 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 really true and if you think about the when we talked about the mark you know mark fisher for example that's a perfect example of someone talking about how you know the new economy and the new productive you know new technologies have, have, have completely changed how we think and, and live and that and that is yeah that's a perfect example of of a materialist understanding of society basically so we'll briefly talk about classes obviously we have been you know we, we sort of bang the drum about this and, and talk about class um because obviously, you know, modern liberalism, you know, the whole point of it, you know, liberal feminism, liberal anti-racism, all of it sort of issues class analysis. And we were talking briefly off air about uh, this, the, you know, the new Nancy Fraser book about how how easily, you know, stuff which, you know, doesn't talk about class can get co-opted. Dan, completely unprompted, but um, you talked about class. What exactly do you mean by that? And how did Marx, you know, relate to such issues? Well, Nathan, thank you very much for that question. Um, that's an excellent question. So, yeah. So if you think about the period in which Marx and Engels were grow- when I say growing up in, were witnessing, which was, the, you know, the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century, Marx, you know, they saw Marx and Engels see society as being increasingly divided into two simple camps. You know, you've got the working class, who they call the proletarians, and the bourgeoisie or the bosses, you know, the people who owned property or who owned the factories. I may have already said this, but, you know, these classes are both new. You know, previously there wasn't a proletariat. There were, you know, peasants and serfs and you got the landed gentry. Um, but obviously, you know, the peasants move into the cities and, cre- you know, create the, this new class called the proletariat, basically. So the divide they were they noticed was obviously be- was between the workers and the bosses. And much of it was about who owned private property. So um, more specifically, they talked about the ownership of the means of production so which basically means the economy so who owns the factory the mill you know the the coal mine yeah so it's the, the, this is what they see the simple divide in society as being between people who own these things which is the, you know the bosses or the bourgeoisie and the people who don't own them which are the workers okay instead you know the ownership of these uh, the means of production as i said it means of production is one of those terms that you don't have to get intimidated by it basically just means who owns the places in which you work and who owns the economy yeah and it's increasing you know and they were saying well this is increasingly concentrated in the hands of small 
small people, essentially. And what's interesting now is that, you know, under this new capitalist system, you know, the, you know, the Industrial Revolution starts and Marx and Engels note that, you know, everything now is reducible to exchange or money. OK, so religion has been if you read the Communist Manifesto, they basically talk about how this new economic system has massively transformed society, how it's transplanted and like, you know, replaced this old sort of feudal agricultural based society of like lords and stuff. You know, religion has so everything becomes a commodity, doesn't it? Yeah. Religion has been replaced by money. Personal worth is measured in exchange value or how much your labor is worth. And Marx basically says that the worker himself is now, as you said, Nathan, a commodity. Which, so a commodity basically just means an object. Yeah, so not as an object. Yeah. Um, and that's to be measured. So, you know, a worker as, as a per, is no longer a person, but merely something to be measured by like factory owners as a cost that you can balance against profit you know so again the capitalist will make all his money off the work of the you know the labor of the worker we keep coming back to the relevance of marxism but like in midway in covid you remember there was that american businessman on the news and they asked him how his business has been affected and he said our human capital stock our bio robots yeah our human capital stock hasn't actually been influenced too badly by covid and is ready to go back to work so you know it takes a while Human capital stock. He means, yeah, like people, humans with lives and families. You know, through this. But and, you know, and this is. I mean, this is how this is how capitalists think about workers. You know, these are the uh, famous David Chappelle. Dave Chappelle. <laughs> David Chappelle. There's our famous Dave Chappelle sketch. You know, when he's you know the idea of like minimum wage. Minimum wage is there because you know if people could, they pay you less. Like you know that's yeah. that's you know so so we are cost. You know, health and safety gets cut because. That's expensive. Yeah, it's, it's an already become an yeah, overhead, essentially. Yeah, exactly. So um, these are the things that you know Marx starts to to think about. You know, so society is divided into camps. But what is really important, and at the core of Marxism, and this is the important thing. I, like, well, it's all important. But one of the fundamental, you know, the, one of the criticisms of Marxism is, you know, it's particularly in America, communists want to take away our freedom. Yeah, Marxists don't believe in freedom. Like freedom is absolutely the central component of Marx's moral critique of this of capitalism of this new society he was seeing you know all his writing was basically about freedom you know and he says basically workers and people should be free to live happy fulfilling creative life creative lives you know doing work that they find fulfilling and rewarding and he says you know basically what makes humans different from animals is our ability to be creative you know not just to think about our immediate interests of food shelter you know and so on and he says things like you know free time, disposable time, you know, is wealth itself, you know. So and what he says is that under this new system of capitalism, you know, the worker isn't free at all. You know, this people would call it freedom, but this isn't freedom because he says the worker is a wage slave, you know. And what he says is the worker has to sell his labor power. Otherwise, you'll starve. You have to work. Otherwise, you'll starve. But for me, the key for Marx when he talks about this stuff is like, you know, because there is a debate about, you know, surplus value and profit but for me it's a moral critique you know is the fact that like people aren't free and if you think about now you can't not work you know and he says you know like you know most of us have to do we have we're forced to work because we have to you know most of us have to do jobs we don't like because otherwise we won't survive you know work takes over human beings lives and makes them unhappy and this is what marx is so you know objects to and he says that you know under capitalism the worker is only free when he drinks eats and procreates and these are the only times that, that he has any respite. But for the rest of the time, you're essentially 
a cog in the machine. And he says things, you know, it's really quite sad. He says, you know, the workers are denied, you know, you're denied in the Communist Manifesto, you're denied a family life, you know, because you, his wife and his children have to work, you know, and, and <laughs> obviously children were working at the time in factories because they had like little little hands. So he says only the bourgeois... They couldn't train monkeys well yeah, enough, could they? He just says only the middle classes have the time to have leisure and family life. And you know, think, think about working class single mums and stuff today. You know, people don't have time to do anything other than work. Mark basically says that human pleasure is like denied. Is that Stephen, is it Gould? The, 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 the American Stephen J. Gould. Stephen J. Gould. The biologist, yeah. Yeah, and he has that really profound, like depressing quote where he says, you know, like, yes, like Albert Einstein was a genius. I'm interested in Einstein. But he says, what I'm also interested in is the fact that undoubtedly people who are more smart and talented than Einstein have spent their lives toiling and dying in yeah, fields in, cotton, yeah. in the subcontinent. And that's a fact. And, and and the tragic thing about capitalism, which obviously holds up today, is that people are denied the right to flourish and fulfill their potential in doing whatever because you've got to work. You know, how many of us have met incredible people, talented people who are stuck in, you know, in menial jobs, you know, and like, and, and this I'm is and this, two right now. <laughs> And this is I've yeah, got your mirror set up. <clears throat> and, and this, but this is the core of his critique, you know. Um, you know, is is the fact that we are forced to do things we don't want to do to pay rent, just to keep you know, just to have shelter, you know, just to have shelter. We've got to do shit jobs to pay the rent. We've got to do jobs we don't like to pay the rent. As we talked about in the David Graeber episode, you know, we've got to do jobs that are completely worthless to keep the system going and so on. So basically, so, on the basis of that, the argument is then that the only moral way of organ organizing society is for everyone to share the means of production, the ownership of the means of production, yeah? Because otherwise, whatever happens, society will reorganize itself. Capitalism will reorganize society in a way that makes the most profit. And the way to make the most profit is to buy labor or to force working class people to sell their labor at the cheapest possible price. So the working class always lose because you all, it's all capitalism will always force them to push down prices um, and push down the, the cost of labor. Yeah. So the only moral way of organizing things then is for everyone to own the means of production or maybe to actually question <laughs> whether the current mode of production is the most you know, moral and is best way of organizing society, whether we actually need all the, commod the pointless commodities that we're offered by capitalism, <laughs> which yeah, is maybe another in itself but kieran's uh kieran's saying that and behind him there's it's loads of piles of amazon prime boxes <laughs> yeah someone said the other day it was like capitalism can stop after i get my uh delivery um but uh no so yeah so building on this theory of freedom you know and, and how freedom is taken away you know marx you know, he talked about this concept of alienation you know and like i think alienation is like an overlooked but very important and interesting part of marxism and he says you know Basically, the division of labor and the factory means that the worker becomes alienated. You know, you don't enjoy your work, you don't enjoy going to work. And he says there's four different forms of alienation. So the first one is alienation from the product of your labor. You don't own the luxury car or anything that you make. Yeah, you can't buy it. You don't earn enough to buy it. So, I mean, that is obviously holds for most people who have a job which is productive. Yeah. In an Aston Martin factory. Yeah, exactly. Um Great job making really nice cars for other people. Yeah, exactly. Second, <laughs> I feel so fulfilled. Yeah, so second is alienation from the labour process. So, and this is, I think, one of the key things, is that, you know, workers' creative control from production is removed. You know, you become a robot, simply part of the machine. And Marx spends a lot, spends a lot of time sort of contrasting modern industrial techniques 
with like artisanship. So I don't know, we think of an artisan, what do you think of? You think Daniel Day Lewis becoming a cobbler and making like a series of shoes in Italy or something like that. Or you know, or you know, traditionally as someone being a carpenter or, you know, people having full creative control over the production process from start to finish. But obviously in the new forms and in factories, you're basically people who just you punch a hole in something or you put a rivet on a screw, uh, a washer on a screw and things like that. And that because the division of labor is is created in these factories to, to, to basically speed up the production process and to maximize profits. Yes. Yeah? So, so I used to work, you know, when I used to work in the supermarket checkout, you know, obviously it's a it's an important job. But, you know, th- these are jobs that you can't really be creative about. You have to scan you just scanning stuff, yeah. So there's the alienation from the labour process itself. You know, your work itself becomes unfulfilling and dull. Third, you know, he says there's an alienation from your species essence, which basically means that you know you're a person of flesh, flesh and blood with a mind, and you know, and basically what capitalism does is it forces you essentially to become a machine. You know, you work not because you want to, because you like it, because you're creative, but because you have to, yeah, and that gradually grinds you down. And then fourth, I think it's very important to overlook, is this alienation from others, you know, particularly other workers, and especially now in like our era of LinkedIn and mass unemployment and precarious work. You know, we see other people as competition for jobs. You know, we look down as people, we look down on people who don't have jobs. You know, and, and like, and so capitalism fundamentally divorces human beings from our inherently sort of social and communitarian nature you know, it, it, it encourages competition between people and like if you think about what mark fisher and stuff wrote about mental health you know today mental health problems are considered it's genetic you know you either have these things or you don't and obviously it's certainly true but you know marx would obviously say that you know your mental health and how happy you are and how happy in society is now you flourish is related to society you know it's like someone said the other day didn't they on twitter and was like, you know, I'm a therapist and I can say that while therapy works, what people need most of all is <laughs> money <laughs> and shelter. And it's true because, you know, if you ever have money worries, if you have worries about your job and precarity, you know, your mental health gets absolutely destroyed. And you, know, I'm sure all of us have, you get the sick feeling before you go into work because you don't want to work. I don't want to do it. And, and, you know, that is, you know, it's fundamental, I think, when you think about alienation and how everyday life is under capitalism, you know, to think about this stuff and, and, and Marx, he basically says it is stuff always sort of stops us, stops us sort of flourishing as individuals. And I think that is like the core of the moral, the moral critique, which is, which, which is central to Marxism. Right. Nathan, would you like to ask me a question about maybe the state? So Dan, it just popped into my head, like as you were talking about alienation and class, but how does the state play a role in all of this? Does it does it kind of implement these uh, working practices? You know, how, how does it enforce them? Well, thank you, Neith. Um, yeah, great question. What I realise is because this is a podcast and not a visual lecture that I haven't introduced my slide on the IWW's class pyramid. Um, so if you've ever seen that, you know, the class pyramid is basically you have the kings and queens and like fat cats at the top, um, and then you at the bottom hold and it goes down the pyramid you've got like the middle classes then you've got the police you've got the soldiers and then underneath holding the society up you've got the workers so it says it says something like the soldiers say like we oppress you or we shoot you the media say we trick you we fool you then you've got religious people saying like we condemn molest you you. (laughs) and then at the bottom you've got the workers holding up society and it says we work for all we feed all, you know, we're the most productive and important class, yeah. And but it's um, basically what Marx says is like, so how is capitalism? This system is it kept in place? And what he argues is that the new system is kept in place by the state. 
And so when you think of the state, what do we mean? If you're liberal, you think as a state as just being the nation, you know, the civil society, it's the houses of parliament, the civil service, they're manned by professionals who run the country, you know, they're supported by people like the police who keep us safe. The army protects us from harm. Yeah, the army protects us from harm. You know, the education system educates us and, and provides us with a fantastic start in life. The state, for a lot of people, is just viewed as this neutral thing you know it sort of stands it keeps society ticking it keeps it provides us with health care it provides us with motorways it protects from other countries from terrorists you know if someone cheats on cheats us or robs us or attacks us we can go to the state for help and justice will be done and it's taken for granted you know that these are just people doing their job and they're mostly doing a very a very good job in difficult circumstances you know after all look at the stability of the uk compared to like the rest of the world which is why we shouldn't be leaving the eu (laughs) so perfect state (laughs) the perfect state yeah so marx obviously on the other hand argues that the state system is all there to protect capitalism that the government and the rest of the state apparatuses were controlled by capitalists who make the state you know do their bidding you know and this is a constant theme you know throughout uh his writings is the relationship between the state these various organs of society and the capitalist system. So in the Communist Manifesto and the German ideology, he states that the executive of the modern state is nothing but a committee for managing the common affairs of the whole bourgeoisie. And he says political power is merely the organised power of one class for oppressing another. So basically it means that the state isn't neutral. Yeah? So it exists to perpetuate the interests of the ruling class you know, rather than the whole society and a capitalism. And, you know, and the basis of the modern state, if you read Ellen Miskin's Wood, you know, the modern state was established you know, during feudal times, you know, by people who owned land and wealth as a way of perpetuating this state of affairs and preventing people without wealth from taking this away. So the state is isn't it's not something that just organically emerged, but developed as a way of defending the interests of the property classes. Uh, Engels, like the origins of the family, is really good on that. So Marx says, for example, the police or the army are used to control working class people. Yeah. So I mean, and you, you think about like. I always think that in the UK, I mean, like Gramsci would say that you know, the UK is an advanced liberal democratic state, so the state is basically smarter in this country. But like, you know, Welsh people, you know, you should have grown up seeing images of like the police kicking the shit into miners um, on horseback and, and these things or, you know, or in Northern Ireland, uh, you know, British backed death squads killing, you know, human rights lawyers like Pat Finucane. And, you know, you've got the court. So he says a court's are there to imprison you. But he also says it is important that state creates ideology. You know, he says the ideas of the ruling class are in every epoch the ruling ideas. So either the class, which is the ruling material force of society, is at the same time its ruling intellectual force. So the class, which has the means of material production at its disposal, has control at the same time of the means of mental production. So thereby, generally speaking, the ideas of those who lack the means of mental production are subject to it. So obviously, this is why, you know, the, the media and our news in the UK and across the Western world is controlled by a small amount of billionaires. It should be obvious for people that you know the state is not neutral. You know, ed, ed, like so, Marxist people who study in education would say that the education system is there to inculcate people into this, you know, uh, acculturate people into this way of thinking. So that's why, for example, now the Welsh government, let's just take one example, encourages things like entrepreneurship and business. Um, and you know, traditional scholars would say that the school is there to mimic the factory. You know, you check in, you check out, you go in, you do your shift, and school prepares people to for a life in, in the factory and if you look at how the covid crisis you know it's clear now that like for example the welsh government the british government view schools as dumping grounds for they're just childcare centers for kids so 
parents can drop their kids off while they go and work in the call centers and that's literally how like, education is is viewed and also you know in in the school you know you're you're encouraged to think things like the uk is the best country you're indoctrinated essentially with like nationalist propaganda which keeps you sort of placid and, and stupid and it's the same with religion you know re- organized religion is there to sort of say well don't question anything you know don't question your masters these things are there for a reason blah blah don't get ideas above your station so the marxist analysis of the state is basically that the state is there to facilitate you know the capitalist system and if you look at like i know look at the welsh government um, the Welsh government is completely dominated by capitalist interests. You know, you could say, like, for example, I could say you've got thousands and thousands of charities saying, the way, shit, homelessness is like a massive crisis. We need to adopt housing as a human right. That'll never happen. You know, the CBI or like, you know, the bosses union will say, listen, we need like loads and loads of like um, high quality grade A office buildings instead of like affordable housing. And lo and behold, the Welsh government will will move heaven and earth to make that happen. And obviously over the last hundred or so years, a lot of very smart Marxist theorists have like developed, you know, the, the the role of the state within society. So in particular, Ralph Miliband, The State and Capitalist Society, which is like you know, my favorite ever book, Palantzas, um, Gramsci, or, you know, uh, all, all these theorists that talk about the state. But I think that's... Gramsci that's, yeah, uh, does cover this in like quite a lot of detail. Yes, it does, yeah. Um, but, I, but I think... Kieran's getting fed up. Yeah, yeah, so he's like, shut the fuck up and just finish goddamn episode. Yes, Kieran. Okay, all right. So that, that so that's another takeaway. Consider... Sir, the bell's gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just just consider how. So when you listen, consider how the system is kept in place, but also consider how, the relationship between capitalism and like the political class, and and like that's become clear during the COVID crisis. You know, like the, the British government literally giving grants to like you know Tory donors. You know, making sure Dyson gets the contract for ventilators because he's a Tory donor rather than giving it like ventilator companies. The interrelationship between the political class and the ruling business class is just so obvious and out in the open now. That's like it's like Tom Mill said, you know, there's loads of loads of empirical examples of like here is the state coming together, you know, like the the ruling business you know, the ruling elite are just showing themselves to everyone. They're just like pulling their mask off like yeah, yeah. Da, da, da. Look, yeah, we're just Mills doing this important one. Um, you know, the, the the latest director general of the BBC is like yeah. Tory. Yeah, and like they've uh, was it Eugene yeah. Lebedev, the you know the the Russian billionaire who runs all those uh, those newspapers just just, just become made, a lord, just be made a lord. You know, like and and these these are things these are th- <laughs> these things are just out in the open now. You know, um, it's, it's uh, so it's funny though. Um, I think the other week the Guardian was like the rise of chumocracy is like no it's, it's always existed <laughs> like yeah but it's just capital it's just capitalism people say it's corruption whatever and it's just like is this is just capitalism this is a capitalist state this is just what it is just just <laughs> nakedly open now um okay we are now coming to the end you'll be delighted to know so what Marx basically says and this is the core of how would you, would you change society which is what Kieran touched on earlier well the proletariat right he isn't having much of a good time at the moment is he you know he's forced to work He's probably got his his kid working alongside him with his little hands. He goes to the machines. His wife is normally in work too. He's got cholera. He lives in a house with like two other families. He works ten hours a day, and you know when he gets to the end of the week, he might not get paid at all if the boss doesn't want him to, which is obviously pretty miserable. But what obviously, and this is the core of the Communist Manifesto. What Marx and Engels say is that this isn't inevitable. You know, for for Marx and Engels, they say that the proletariat are the revolutionary class and this is one of the central arguments of marxism you know is the the tenet of proletarian revolution you know um he says a working class will become so strong you know it'll get so big because of 
the way the economy works, that it'll transform society and liberate all other classes. And in the Communist Manifesto, there's this, you know, the great passage when he says, at first, the workers will fight one another. You know, or they conduct, for example, strikes in individual factories and workplaces, but soon they become conscious of their huge collective strength. Yeah, so he goes, with the development of industry, the proletariat not only increases in number, it becomes concentrated in greater masses. Its strength grows and it feels that strength more. So more and more, and he says, more and more people get sucked into the ranks of the proletariat, you know, which keeps growing and growing until the majority class. Um, more and more people get alienated. You eventually get organized through trade unions. They form political parties. And eventually, Marx says, you know, the working class will get organized, overthrow the ruling class and create a classless free society, which is called communism. And they say, you know, the spectre is haunted in Europe, the spectre of communism. And what is interesting, and, and, like, you know, Marx says that all previous revolutions were by minorities, which is what Kieran alluded to earlier. You know, people with money overthrowing other people with money, creating new systems of exploitation. But the proletariat, because they don't own anything, because they don't own, own any property, they don't have any interest in keeping the system as it is. You know, so if they take power, they'll necessarily transform society. And they, at this stage in the lecture, I played a big train clip which is basically like it's Hitchcock's The Birds, but with the working class getting bigger. You're out of love. You're <laughs> yeah. out of love. Yeah, yeah, with the working class getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And obviously the middle class people get like terrified <laughs> because the working class are There's something bigger. up with the working yeah. class. It's just yeah, like the flag running yeah. into a like, window, isn't it? Yeah. All right, love. Yeah, yeah, right, love, yeah. And, and, and the thing is, it is like a fantastic metaphor and, it, and a visual representation of, you know, essentially what Marx and Engels saw was going to happen. You know, obviously it hasn't necessarily happened. It's happened in certain countries, but you know, yeah. and, and yeah. but you know, they happen to, um, to you know differing uh, success. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you, and if you look at what's happened, I mean, you know, obviously the working class is still a majority class. You know, more and more people have been sucked into the working class and proletarianized. But what has obviously happened is the state has used more sophisticated methods of essentially keeping people from understanding what's going on. You know, there's been more and more domination of like the media. Um, more and more domination of like education and so on and so forth. There are multiple reasons why you know why why world proletarian revolution hasn't happened. But this you know I guess that's the you know that's the final part of Marxism is the idea that the revolution only the working class can sort of free society and only the and, and the the working class because we're the most numerous class have this huge revolutionary potential you know and like eventually communism is inevitable communism will win you know we're going to sort of overthrow people will gradually realize that we've got the power and we keep society going and and we don't need you know bosses and we don't need the capitalist system and like you know unfortunately the covid crisis was one such period where you know if we'd had an organized labor movement um which wasn't full of absolute spineless cowards as in the leadership you know you could have had like for example a general strike in the uk which would have been wildly successful because of the leverage the working class people had what are you going to do if, nurse, if nurses and doctors and, and factory workers went on a strike, you know, during the COVID crisis, the start of the COVID crisis and said, pay us like double, what what were the government going to do? Bring in relief workers. They wouldn't have been able to do it. The, the moment of leverage was just absolutely ridiculous. And the TUC and Francis O'Grady and all those people, those, those cowards have just absolutely bottled it. And we've come out in a weaker position, despite of people obviously learning that they've got more and more power, which is an utterly ridiculous situation to be in but that is essentially it then boys we've covered the very basics hopefully if you've listened to this you will agree with it but also i would like people to start to think about things you know using marxism you know do you think the analysis has relevance today you know return to something you think about like a phenomena in society 
and think about how you know Marx and Engels would approach it. So that is all you need to know about Marxism. I don't know. We will hopefully be doing returns to this, and, and you know we can do like deeper dives into like, for example, the state or class or or, or what you know. Well, the funny thing is, you kind of done it backwards because you've done the deep dive. <laughs> Uh, Bourdieu, you know, Raymond yeah. Williams. These are complimentary episodes. Yeah, we should have done this as the very first episode. But I we think we're planning. To. <laughs> we haven't, so you just have to deal with it. I think after this, we'll do um, we'll do uh, an introduction to anarchism, um, and we can have guests on and so on. Special shout-outs from me to, well, my family, my beautiful family, and my friends. Uh, and also, I will never actually... I don't know, elaborate on it, but I was going to do one of those academic tweets like some good news, you know, so finally being offered a job first time in about, what, 150, 200 applications over the last four years. So I don't know. We'll see what's happening with that. Kieran, I just want to say congratulations again, mate. I know you're coy about your good news, but you've worked your, bollock, you've worked your bollocks off over the last... Slowly find my way, my way up the social ladder. I will be a member of, fully paid up member of the bourgeoisie. Kieran is changing. Get Yeah, it's like... Buy his rookie card now, because like after this year, the price the price ain't coming down because this guy is, ladies, <laughs> <laughs> he's gonna be rich basically. So congratulations, Akira. Yeah. Word your absolute box. Also, yeah, shout out to you. Um, any shout outs to you from you? Um, you, you you said you, and then you looked into the camera. So which which one? <laughs> you? Any shout outs from Kieran, and then we'll go I on to. Yeah, to myself, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> obviously, my family. The good thing about being single at Christmas time is that it's really cheap, so I don't have to buy any presents for anyone except like a few members of my family. So, that yeah, shout, shout out to my family over Christmas and cheers, boys. Kieran's so successful, he keeps putting like success memes on Instagram, like you know, uh, lions don't concern themselves with the opinions of sheep and things like right, that. Rise and grind. <laughs> Every day, rise and grind, like. Um, <laughs> Nathan, any shout-outs or beefs? Uh, no beefs this week. <laughs> <laughs> just scrunched up the piece of paper. Yeah, yeah, just a very long list of beefs. Um, yeah, I'm going to have shout-outs to the film that I mentioned earlier, They Live, which has a, a shorter running time than this entire episode. Pick <laughs> um, it up and come back to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, um, we mentioned um, some things throughout the episode about like how politics uh, develops around the, um, the birth of industry and different types of industry and quite a good book on that is carbon but not uh, carbon democracy by timothy mitchell okay. and also um, about state development james c scott's really good on that and um so in the ron berry episode kira mentioned that i've been playing with lego so i just want to elaborate that i was trying to build an extension but i noticed that the cost of bricks was too high so i've just been buying um loads of lego pieces off ebay assortment and now i've got a conservatory well then Nate. it's blown over though Probably. i should also i should also say shout out to shooting tin man aka steph for sort of keeping the podcast going um, yeah yeah <laughs> over the a last new member over the last six months, so nice and tin man boy. Uh, welcome aboard. Yeah, check out Steph's uh, Trotsky episodes as well. Which yeah, is- which is an incredibly useful and fascinating two-parter. Right, guys, thank you all so much for listening. You're absolute diamonds. Um, and well, hopefully this version will go out. Hopefully this version will go out. Who knows? You'll probably you might listen to the version three or four. Um, uh, but yeah, thanks for listening. And don't remember, you know, don't remember. Don't forget to uh, follow us on Twitter at Desolation Wales uh, and subscribe to our Patreon. Um, Please yeah. subscribe. See you soon. <laughs> I've just gone to the point of begging now. All right. Bye Cheers. Bye bye. How much did they give you? 
20 grand, man. And of course, I still get to keep the rug. Just for making the handle? Yeah, he gave uh, dude a beeper. Also, whenever these guys call. What if it's during a game? Oh, I told them uh, if it was during league play. What's during league play? Life uh, does not stop and start you know, at your convenience, you I, miserable uh, piece of shit. I, I figure. What's wrong with Walter, dude? Uh, I figure it's easy money, you know. It's all pretty harmless. She probably kidnapped herself. Huh? Oh, what do you mean, dude? Rug Piers did not do this. Look at it. A young trophy wife marries this guy for his money. She figures that he isn't giving her enough. You know, she owes money all over town. That oh, fucking. It's all bitch. goddamn fake, man. It's like Lennon said. You look for the person who will benefit, and uh, uh, you know. Uh, I am the walrus. You know, you'll. Uh, uh, you know what I'm trying to say. I am the walrus. Uh, Fucking bitch. Oh, yeah. I am the walrus. That's ex Shut the fuck up, Donnie. The I Lennon. Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov. What the fuck is he talking about?